How to create a glitch? Historical revisionism. This is a summary episode designed to amalgamate material on the subject of emotional calibration as introduced in the first season of Monologues. Now, for the most part, up until now, we've talked a lot about how the system is organized, how it manifests, how to create glitches in reality. We've talked about narratives and tension and a number of other ideas. But with this podcast, I'd like to use as a kind of transition between this season and the next season of how to create a glitch in the matrix. And the way that I'll do that is by discussing the nature of reality and the programming of reality from a macrocosmic perspective. Up until now, we've been discussing the microcosmic operation of reality, the rules which govern it and how it manifests. But with this podcast, I'd like to talk about the larger picture. Now, the first thing I'll have to say is that the same principles which underlie the microcosmic aspects of reality, so narrative, tension, the four principles, substitution and displacement, polarity union and conservation. All of those ideas, which apply to the microcosmic world, also apply to the macrocosmic world. But you have to look at him from with a wider lens to understand how they impact sociality. Now, early on in the podcast, I discussed how a simple choice, such as refusing to take off one's jacket in a hot and humid room, can alter the bounds of sociality and undermine the ordinary expression of meaning. So, what are essentially non-conformist or, in some ways, antisocial behaviors can undermine the ordinary operation of a social exchange and expose the unusual beneath it. That being said, you could also look at the question of whether or not to say take off your jacket in a hot and humid room filled with other individuals also having taken their jackets off from the standpoint of trends. And this idea is that when social circumstances create patterns of behavior, it manifests as a trend and it's more accessible to discuss this manifestation is a trend for the purposes of the microcosmic view of things. So, if we look at trends on a larger scale, we can say that we know that trends historically will replicate or eternally recur. We know that over the course of many years in a society, historical trends tend to reoccur periodically. The question is whether or not that is directed or undirected process, and I would submit that it is a directed process, a manifestation of the programming of this reality. And the way that I'll explain it is that trends, media, movies, film, theatre, all the various manifestations of art reflect the times in which they originally were generated. So, for example, if you look at society right now or even on a microcosmic perspective, if you look at the way an individual dresses in, say, the year 2021, that manner by which they dress on any particular day is going to be a reflection of a style which was prevalent during a certain era. And the impact of replicating a style which belongs to a particular era in the past is a recapitulation of the social circumstances of that earlier manifestation of the style. So effectively, what I'm saying is individuals are calibrated by anchored emotional memories, which are embedded in the unified mind of the consensus reality. So basically, when an individual makes a choice to replicate a trend or style or an artistic subject, they are making a conscious decision to calibrate their mind and the reality which they inhabit to a particular day, in a particular time or in a particular location. So, let's say an individual decides in 2021 to start a trend of wearing bell-bottom jeans. That trend, if it catches on, 
will calibrate the population to a particular era in the history of Western civilization or even Eastern civilization, any civilization which manifested that style at a historical period. So, if you create that trend, let's say the last time it was prevalent was the 1970s. The 1970s were an era of high inflation of issues with oil, of wars in certain areas of economic stagnation, etc., etc. So, you're linking the trends of history to a particular style which then becomes a trend which then manifests the anchored factual events of the last time that that style was prevalent. You could also say that this anchoring is simply a reflection of the manifestation of a particular era mirroring an earlier era. And I won't say that that's not the case, but what I am saying is that for the purposes of my thesis and the thesis of this podcast, it only makes sense to look at it as a directed process and as a directed process. It makes sense that the incidental choices that we make with our style, with our media choices, our consumption choices are all ultimately drawing us back to a time in the past and recapitulating those ideological conflicts of that era in the present moment. So, in other words, on a macrocosmic scale, society is directed by calibration, and it's directed by calibration, using trends in the arts and in media. And so, ultimately, the pattern, which is revealed by this is one of eternal recurrence. And ultimately, it's a pattern which can be undermined by resisting historical trends or the manifestation of trends in society through the various methods described in these podcasts. So, on a macrocosmic scale, resisting trends or recapitulating trends which counter the trends of the present is the most effective way from that standpoint to assist in creating a glitch in the matrix. Now again, I'll summarize the points that I've made in this podcast for the reader or for the listener. Essentially, the way that the microcosmic system works is individuals are calibrated by artistic trends in fashion, media, music and film or theater. Individuals replicate styles of status figures, and those styles are ultimately calibrated by a particular emotional era or era in history corresponding to certain ideological struggles or economic circumstances or historical behavior. So, these patterns ultimately recur through the calibration of styles and media in the public theater. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about how emotional calibration, as introduced in the last episode of the first season of Monologues, how emotional calibration works and what the purpose of it is. So, to start out, I'd like to indicate that there's two ways of looking at the process of emotional calibration and the use of trends in style and media consumption choices to calibrate the population to a particular period in history where there were specific ideological struggles and the recapitulation of those ideological and historical trends in the more recent era. So, the first way to look at it is from a passive standpoint. And as I indicated in the last episode of season one of the monologues, I do not believe that the calibration of the population is a passive process. I believe it's directed as such, since I believe it's directed, I believe that it is directed for a purpose. So that's the first kind of point I'd like to get across the emotional calibration of the population is a directed process, and it's directed for a specific purpose. So, what is that purpose? The purpose of reintroducing certain ideological conflicts in the population periodically through the emotional calibration of styles and media choices and consumption choices is for the purposes of eliminating underlying currents of social tension. So, 
In other words, basically, what I'm suggesting is periodically the system builds up a certain amount of entropy, and this entropy manifests as social tension within the context of social exchanges or socialization. So there has to be a way to eliminate this social tension, this entropy within the system. So, in order to do that, the programming of the system is designed to reintroduce certain ideological conflicts periodically and direct that social tension or entropy into that ideological conflict, that ideological conflict. Then over time, and by the mechanism of social dialogue is gradually eliminated and the social tension dissipates. Now, one of the key steps for this process to work is that the sources of entropy, those who are causing issues in the system, those who are building up entropy in the system, those who are creating social tension, they have to be redirected and they have to be redirected carefully towards one of two positions in an ideological conflict. The central ideological conflicts of a given era thus manifest as the gradual attribution to those causing social tension or entropy in the system, and therefore the release of that tension during a subsequent period of resolution in the narrative. So, the key point on an individual level or the key step in order to make this whole process work is that individuals have to be rationalized according to a specific categorical categorization which exists in the populace already, which is to say that ideological conflicts can only be recapitulated if individuals are properly categorized into the two classifications or more which describe the ideological conflict. What this means in practice is that individuals will find that if they create entropy in the system, they're going to be socialized to describe that entropy or that tension that they create into set categories which have been set aside for them, as set out in the emotionally calibrated ideological struggle identified and implemented through the emotional calibration of media and fashion. Now it's also important to note on another line of thinking that oftentimes these stylistic changes or recapitulation are unconscious. That is, individuals will gravitate towards specific styles or consumption choices based upon the underlying programming of the system, oftentimes without their knowledge or express understanding that they're being directed towards it and the principle by which this occurs is through their posture. Postural releases and as explained in the previous season, postural release is what they do is they involve the consent or acquiescence of one individual to another and the mirroring of their behavior posture and posing. This mirroring behavior created by postural releases eliminates tension. And so, when an individual mirrors another individual, oftentimes that will also include mirroring their styles and fashion and media consumption choices. So, in the process of giving in or consenting and thereby eliminating social tension, they're also acquiring an unconscious desire to mirror the other person's style choices or consent media consumption choices. So, this emotional calibration is built into the system as far as social tension is concerned and the essential nature of reality. Now the question becomes how does one work against this process? Well, in the same way that one can create a glitch by artificially eliminating postural releases. One can also be mindful of one's stylistic choices and consumption choices, and when one is is directed unconsciously to follow certain patterns as it pertains to style and media or consumption choices, one can willfully choose to reject those impulses and act in accordance with a particular era in history that one seeks to recapitulate. So, for example, 
Let's say one seeks to recapitulate a specific style in the past 30 years for the purposes of identifying certain ideological struggles and bringing those out in society, one can choose to direct one's consumption choices into that pattern, with the aim of hopefully creating a trend among one's immediate the social and social circle and family members. So, the imposition of certain techniques in the context of these discussions is helpful in hopefully creating a glitch in the matrix and working against the programming of the system for the purposes of undermining the natural progression of an orderly, orderly exchange. In this episode I'll be discussing a few distinct ideas and drawing them together into a framework to understand how history has changed. First of all, to reintroduce a previously discussed concept called emotional calibration, the system is macrocosmically programmed by trends to recapitulate eras in the past. If you want to understand this concept please listen to my earlier podcasts on the subject. Now, there are some practical shortcomings of using the emotional memories of the eldest generation as an anchor for the social behavior of the masses in the present. The first drawback is that biologically we are now dying at the age of 80. Whereas, at the beginning of the last century it was probably closer to half that. By consequence of this fact, biologically a parent may be alive and kicking with four generations of offspring alive. In the past, there was a generational gap created by the death of the first generation such that they could not oversee four generations or more of their descendants. The second major drawback is that worldwide migration has undermined the uniformity of historical experience amongst the older generations. This is to say that what would calibrate one person according to their ancestral memory might have no impact on another. Now, we know that experience is in a way a projection of our impulses, our expectations, our confidence wages, and nothing more. We know that reality is responsive to our entreaties, but we also know that there are now four generations of people living that are the biological offspring of a single living generation, which by and large, has not yet ceded control politically. In the past, the generational gap acted to eliminate the continuity created by historical precedent. But now there is no such blind spot in history and the boomers can just keep cycling us through the same eras and trends again and again. In fact, by the time the boomers have passed into history, the millennials will be ready to jump into place, recapitulating the past 40 years or so for another few decades. Now, thinking in terms of expectations and projections, a mother and father may have expectations about what their child will be like or become. They may even have plans worked out, even if only unconsciously. But they would rarely if ever foresee four generations into the future. Thus, the projection of our expectations still carries with it a blind spot, but of a different kind. It is not a blind spot created by missing time, it is a blind spot created by having too much time. What if science, being the filter of our era, is becoming narrower and narrower with each passing day? not humanity. In this episode we will be elaborating the functioning of emotional calibration. To understand emotional calibration completely, one has to understand that it draws upon not just the memories inherent to one's archetypal constellation, but also one's latent ancestral memory. Each of us carry within us the historicity of our ancestors which we may draw upon, or those outside of us may draw upon, to replicate patterns of behavior from different eras or ages. 
but calibration is also an active process in our everyday lives. A song, for example, can represent something which is triggering for us each time we hear it, producing certain patterns in our behavior or bringing us back to given times in our lives. For example, imagine that right before breaking up with your ex, you heard a specific song. Now, in a different relationship, you find yourself repeating those thought patterns because you hear that triggering song. Or let's say you wear that tweed jacket because your mother was reminded of your father when she looked at you leaving the bathroom, which caused her to think of their first date, on which he was wearing tweed. Imagine that this powerful memory recapitulates your similarities to your father, or at least your mother's perception of who your father was. And you find yourself living out those similarities proximate to the calibrating event. For example, if you are triggered by the stylistic similarities between a venue and your ancestors' memories of a place in the 20s, then you will grow in your archetypal similarities to your ancestor. Memory is an evocative and powerful tool to replicate past patterns and recapitulate resolving narratives. All of history follows the path set down through calibration, for there is nearly nothing new under the sun. Finally, it is important to note that emotional calibration can be the product of external influence or modulation, that is, it can be directed, or it can be organic, undirected, and of limited agency. The difference is important because once one is aware of the process one acquires a kind of calibration consciousness. The capacity to recognize that one is not just a single active free agent, but rather that one's life is the product, recipient and source of historical trends. Likewise, many patterns of behavior are the product of generational and intergenerational patterns passed on through ancestral memory. Even patterns in one individual's life may be the product of these self-same trends. In this episode we will be talking about retrograde calibration, a new concept. Emotional calibration was a word I used to explain the concept by which emotional memories of particular eras were used to recapitulate the histories and ideological struggles of an era. This commonly would occur through style which acts as an anchor for the underlying memories of the era. So, for example, as a directed process, individuals will be directed to recapitulate say the 70s by returning 70s style to prevalence. Retrograde calibration involves the use of triggers to recapitulate an era within the ancestral history of an individual. Rather than collectively calibrating the populace to a common memory, retrograde calibration will have the effect of drawing out and reliving memories that are ancestral, which has an effect of resetting the individual to that identity. The person may experience a historical era as a living thing. During this episode, which will return them to a state of fidelity to their roots. The presence of triggers for these memories will coincide to the extent that these living eras remain embedded in the present. They will remain living eras to the extent that they were not completely expunged by historical genocides. As another example, let's say that Marianne sees someone replicate a gesture which triggers a memory of a Gnostic ritual performed by her ancestor, prior to being forcibly converted by the Catholic Church. This will trigger an experience which may last a moment or an hour, during which she will experience the feelings of her ancestor directly. She will find herself preoccupied with thoughts or reminiscences over Gnostic ideas. These triggered ancestral memory experiences play out as direct overlays upon the experiences of the individual. 
Others will take on archetypal roles in the narrative and will direct the conversation in such a fashion so as to accentuate the reliving of the memory. In fact, it is accurate to say, as Philip K. Dick in fact did, the empire never ended. Just as it is accurate to say that the exodus continues to this day. The point is that time is elastic. Eras don't necessarily stay in the past, nor the future beyond the present. Now, a web of association must have two dimensions to it. In the first, it must have an ideal component, a numerical component, and in the second, it must have a narrative component. Both must be intermingled and so embedded. The purpose of the ideal or numerical is to draw that individual into the ideal. The purpose of the narrative is to draw the individual back into social experience. Narrative does this by acting as an overlay upon the present experiences of the individual through examples such as given with regards to retrograde calibration. Thus, if we truly wanted our six primordial unit class to succeed as a web of associations, it would also have to have its own narrative and creation story to go along with it, with all the symbolic, archetypal, and esoteric trappings of that. In this episode, we will be talking about contextual and non-contextual meaning, conjoined consensualities, and multi-contextuality. In past episodes, we introduced the topic of consensual multi-contextuality. We applied it to interactions between dissonant consensualities. Essentially, the point was that when two dissonant consensualities interact, it begins a dialectical degeneration of one of the consensualities. With a puncturing initiated by spatial non-consensuality, followed by the contextualization of the dissonant consensuality. Thus, the dialectical gradient created by situation, namely which consensuality is favored by the masses, determines the direction of the dialectical degeneration of the two dissonant consensualities into the contextualization of the favored consensuality. In plainer terms. The favored consensuality penetrates the non-favored one, puncturing it, resulting in the contextualization of the actor's emotions according to the dominant paradigm. Now, subsequent to the contextualization of the non-favored consensuality, it is resurrected, so to speak, through consensual multi-contextuality. This basically means that the experience and the ones that follow it are reorganized and reconstituted by extension of the actor's multi-contextualization. That is, their theory of reality provides them an opportunity to impute multiple meanings to the experience through exegesis. The experience is then incorporated into this framework, resurrecting the consensual reality which disintegrated through the dialectical degeneration of its encounter with the other. Now, it can be said that the process essentially works because the framework in which the experience is incorporated is totipotent. It is discrete meaning, minute. In other words, there are a great many contexts or experiences which it can rationalize. Contextual meaning, on the other hand, is bulky, unwieldy, applicable only to the very personal context in which it originates. The difference between these two forms of meaning. Contextual and non-contextual, or multi-contextual, is almost organic. Imagine that each situation, each context, between two dissonant consensual actors, the substrate, so to speak, of that intersection, is rather like the exterior of a cell or biochemical molecule. Now, contextual meaning is rather perfect for that situation. Its curves and forms fit perfectly into the interplay between the levels of expression of the actors.
Imagine that instead of thinking of the five spatial plates as five independent features of an exchange, instead we think of them as dimensions of an organic structure. This organic structure possesses five dimensions of contextual meaning for five spatial dimensions of social expression. Now, the context is the structure constructed out of those five dimensions of spatiality between the two interacting social actors. Now, this structure, which comprises the five dimensions of meaning, the characteristics of this five-dimensional substrate which is the context, is complex and large, meaning that the contextualizations applied to it must be very particularly suited to that conformation. Whereas, non-contextual esoteric meaning is a generalist. It finds its way into a multitude of contexts, because it is nimble and small. To look at it another way, imagine if the esoteric meanings, the multi-contextuality that we use to reconstitute our consensual reality, is rather like a virus, small, nimble, and quick, it ekes its way into each context, assimilating the substrate and multiplying endlessly. The contextual meaning is rather like a bacteria, or single-celled organism, it requires exactly the same contexts to duplicate itself. This comparison shows us that our ability to generate a multi-contextual meaning from our experiences, the re-rationalization of context in the face of dialectical degeneration, enables our thought processes to expand into new territory, new contexts, new ideas, while adapting itself to each new situation in which it finds itself. Contextual multi-contextuality is adaptive, truly adaptive, whereas contextualization is inert, restricted, and unidimensional. In this episode, we will be discussing the purpose of the film industry, its functioning and application as a system of control. We will also be reconceptualizing the tonic-dominant relationship according to consensuality and non-consensuality. The film industry is the major system of control within the simulation. It completes this task by eliminating social tension caused by internal ideological conflicts. The manner by which it does this is through proxy archetypes, characters, designed to represent a particular ideological antagonist, who, through the narrative, finds that ideological tension ultimately exposed and dissipated by the resolution or climax of the story. To explain this another way, imagine you are going through your day, and you have a terrible day, filled with social anxiety about the upcoming election due to your political leanings. Netflix knows what films you have watched in the past, in fact it knows precisely at what time of the day you watched them, as well as receiving information from other apps and social media companies. It uses all of this information to identify your self-attributions, which it uses to recommend a particular film which resolves the social tension through the hubris or apotheosis of the character in the film. That is to say, AI chooses a film for you based upon your internal ideological struggle, which then resolves that struggle subliminally through the resolution of the tension in the narrative form. Now, this all suggests a few things. 1. Movies are being produced based upon self-attributions, not arbitrary industry conditions. The production houses mandate a certain number of preconceived characters with given self-attributions so as to ensure the full spectrum of ideological conflicts can be resolved through the narratives of the produced films. Imagine, it is as if there is a spectrum of ideological conflicts, like a spectrum of light, which provides the pigeonholes for each type of character of varying class, 
race, sexual orientation, religion, etc. All of these pigeonholes are then provided narratives, or written into narratives, so that for each type of ideological conflict, the resolution of the climax of the narrative in the film undermines expression of that conflictual impulse. Thus, our consensual reality is constructed out of the architecture of the film business. Its business plan is our model, i.e., how many films of each area, how many characters of each persuasion. The library of content available to the system determines its effectiveness in ensuring we don't run afoul of societal norms as a result of ideological undercurrents in the system. In fact, this process is simply a pure manifestation of emotional calibration expressed in season 1, episode 9, season 9, episode 2, and season 11, episode 4. These episodes discuss emotional calibration as the mechanism through which society is calibrated to a specific age in history. But the calibration of the film industry is more individualized, micromanaging the ideological conflicts into self-attributions that can be resolved individually instead of through collective action. There are of course other methods of self-control as well as emotional calibration through films and style such as the use of subliminal sexual imagery to desensitize for the purposes of calibrating the disgust sensitivity of the viewers which is closely aligned with the person's position on the political spectrum. Now, the second topic we would like to discuss is the tonic-dominant relationship from the standpoint of consensuality and non-consensuality. Emotional calibration is used to generate a consistent consensuality, but in the tonic-dominant relationship, only the tonic's impulses are met, which means that the dominants are relegated or subducted into their unconscious, or shadow self. This means that emotional coupling, the tonic-dominant relationship brings the tonic's impulses out of their shadow self and pushes down the impulses of the dominant into their shadow self. In this episode, we will be discussing how emotional calibration is a system-wide application of contextual multi-contextuality. This enables a particular reorganization of an ideological conflict between an in-group and an out-group. Now, emotional calibration was described as the use of media, consumption choices, style to recapitulate an era in the past by triggering common emotional signposts or anchors in the populace. Emotional calibration can be used on the microcosmic scale to produce adjustments in the behavior of others. Emotional memories are linked to ideological struggles joined to particular eras, which are then recapitulated in the populace to drain the system of entropy. Up until now, we have been talking about emotional calibration as if the substrate, or memory, is inert, not subject to the ideological whims of the calibrator. But, that is often not the case. The use of multi-contextuality shows us that a consensual reality can be resurrected after the fact of its dissolution through the application of a technique of exegesis. Thus, when a consensuality meets a dialectical opposite within a system, a dissonant consensuality, whichever is favored by the majority will dialectically degenerate its opposite. Only through the use of multi-contextuality, applying multiple meanings to the experience, multiple narratives, can that dissonant consensuality be resurrected. Emotional calibration is usually used within an in-group to calibrate system members' behaviors. That is, they share a common history, which enables them to promulgate their self-attributions through the generations. They share a history, a story, a narrative, 
with common signposts, ideological struggles, heroes and archetypes. Emotional calibration is thus frequently a mechanism for the perpetuation of a history, as something inert and undirected. But what if the emotional memories of one in-group contrast those of another in-group? What if there is some necessary conflict between the two? In other words, emotional calibration can produce contrary narratives when individuals are part of the same in-group at a later date. The reinterpretation of history, flipping the ideological heroes of past eras, flipping the narrative, means that the use of memories from the past within an in-group may result in the inversion of the narrative. Thus, to give you an example, person A is the descendant of person B. Person C is the descendant of person D. Person B and person C had a conflict in the past. Person B was the victor at the time, but person D never admitted defeat. Person C obtains power in the present and he applies multi-contextuality to say that person D actually won the conflict which was stolen from him because of the bias of the judges. Thus, person B cannot calibrate using the memory of his victor over D without generating claims of bias by C. Emotional calibration is thus an inert tool which enables the directing of entropy into an ideological conflict, but that says nothing of the importance of multi-contextuality in promulgating a particular narrative associated with the emotional memory. Since we know that the majority will hold the title of the in-group, we know that their emotional calibration will dominate the narrative. This tells us that emotional calibration can become a tool of multi-contextuality. It can invoke the resurrection of a consensuality in the present which was expunged in the past. Consensual multi-contextuality can be applied to society en masse through the application of a reinterpretation of history. By rewriting the history of society for the masses, one determines the narratives which will be resurrected by the emotional calibration of the population. Most especially when two groups that were formerly segregated by in-group and out-group become joined, the common memory of the group may be altered through the multi-contextuality of one of its subsets. He who has the power to rewrite history has the power to resurrect his consensuality. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.